Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. A neuroscientist at the University of Arizona who is considered an expert in the field of Alzheimer's tells this story. I used to take daily walks with a patient and she was a fascinating woman. She would tell stories about her career as a college professor. I would walk her back to her room, say goodnight, and then wait 30 seconds. And then I would ask her the question, do you remember me? And she would say, should I? This is a powerful snapshot of Alzheimer's disease. And the woman you are about to meet knows how it feels to lose both her mother and her father to the disease. She and her brothers and sisters kind of feel like ticking time bombs, just waiting for Alzheimer's disease to possibly come after them. A long walk with a friend helped today's guest set the course for the latest chapter in her incredible life. You see, she'd been asked to spearhead a fundraising gala for the Alzheimer's Association, and she doesn't like to ask people for money, and besides, she thought, no one will come. But the people did come. She had hoped to raise about $200,000 that night, but instead, she raised $2 million. And more than $30 million later, with matching funds from Bill Gates, she is the passionate founder of Part the Cloud, on a mission to get promising drugs into clinical trials and ultimately into the hands of Alzheimer's patients. Her name is Mikey Hogue. This is her story. Mikey, welcome to the show. Candy, it is an honor to be here today, and thank you for shedding a light on something that is so important to me and so important to so many people out there. So I really appreciate this opportunity. Let's talk a little bit, Mikey, about your mom and your dad. Can you paint me a picture? I had the rock star of parents. I had two incredible people who gave us faith, gave us great pride in our country, gave us optimism. My mom and my dad were married, you know, very young and uh, had six children and then 20 grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren. My dad bought a farm sort of the middle of his career and it is a place we gather at Thanksgiving. We are 50 under one roof with all the different generations. He has a big American flag on this farm and there's chickens and cows and Horses, it has given us a lifelong memories and the values of how important family is, working together and being optimistic. You know, if you're born in this country, anything you really put your mind to it, you can do. So I was very, very blessed. What was the message in your house in terms of work ethic and then, of course, in terms of what really matters? My dad was the breadwinner. He had an interesting background. He had very, very little money, got a scholarship to Yale, played on the lacrosse team. The story goes that he had the whole lacrosse team, when they graduated, signed up and went to the Korean War, uh, was nearly killed with a bomb blast, and it was very touch and go, and he was awarded a Purple Heart. Came out, worked at a trucking company on the line, and something got caught up in the machine, and he turned off the machine, reached in, and had his hand cut off. They took it to the hospital. Never had they really sewn on a hand before. And my mother, the doctor said, we're going to put a hook on it. And she said, absolutely not. Get back in there. I'm going to <laughs> church. I'm going to be praying about this. You will sew that hand back on. And they did. My father's fingers were paralyzed, but he was able to shake a hand. And he said, you know, I never would have been able to be hired 
if I'd had a hook back in those days. And he went on to investment banking, had a huge work ethic. You must have thought that he was pretty invincible. You get a diagnosis like this. What were his symptoms? We would go to a restaurant and he really struggled with the tip. Couldn't figure out the difference between a $100 bill and a dollar bill. My mom and him, I think, did a great job trying to hide it for a while. We lived in New Jersey and my dad commuted into New York. And the state trooper called one day and said, your dad or your husband has been up and down the highway for hours. He couldn't figure out where to go. So he kept going back and forth through the toll booth. And I think that was the aha moment. When Alzheimer's starts, you start making excuses. You know, they're just getting older and they're getting slipping and and you spend years of denial. And then you have something that's, you know, really sets it off. And when you look back, you go, you know, we've had those signs, but we just didn't put it together. It's not the same for every person. It's not like, oh my gosh, the light switches are off. It's that slow, steady decline that you start to see going, wait a minute, now it feels a little dangerous. Should he really be driving? Should we allow someone to cook? It's those things that you go, wow, this could really end up dangerous. What about your mom's symptoms? Were they similar to your dad? My dad had it for close to 12 years, and my mom was the primary caretaker with my younger sister. And to think that she took care of him all that time. And and at the end, he was bedridden and it was really quite awful. And then she, again, just, you know, couldn't remember names, just couldn't put things together. And we had all the warnings at that point. You knew exactly what it was. And it was sort of like, no, not again. You know, our family then looked at it for 20 years of something that takes so much from you. It takes your dignity. The person's still there but emotionally they left a long time ago. It's just so heartbreaking. I think that's the reason why I love the name Part the Cloud so much, because in those three words, it explains so much. It's almost as if a veil comes down, the cloud comes over, and that person, like you just said, is sitting or standing in front of you, but a part of them just isn't there anymore. Tell me about the mission of Part the Cloud. You are part of the Alzheimer's Association. How does the whole thing work? We give restricted dollars to the Alzheimer's Association. So when my dad was first diagnosed, my family lives back east. I live in California. I'm the only sibling that's not in the local area. When my father was diagnosed, you know, you, you don't have any answers. There's, there's no drug. There's no cure for Alzheimer's. So you really run around in circles saying, well, who do we talk to? What do we do? Tell us answers. And of course, no, no case is the same. But I turned to the Alzheimer's Association 20 years ago and said, okay, well, I can't help with the day-to-day work, but my husband and I, we can help with research. We will give money towards research because we've got to get there faster. And they do a great job of educating us. And we would go to conferences and I would learn about it. And all of a sudden, the dollars that I kept seeing going out the window were for basic science. And if you do the math, You know, a trial can last 15 to 20 years, and we're funding these basic science, which is so, so important. But I'm looking down the road going, I don't have 20 years. You know, I need something sooner. So I've gotten involved and I feel educated, but what my husband and I can do is pennies compared to if we could get people together. And a friend of mine said to me, you know, you really should do an event. And and Alzheimer's is nothing sexy about it. On a Saturday night, going to something for Alzheimer's, why don't I stick a needle in my eye? I mean, it just sounds (laughs) awful. 
but she said to me, you should do a fundraiser. And I said, I don't want to talk about it. What my dad's going through, it's personal, it's gut-wrenching, it's heartbreaking, and it's not something that you want to talk about. She said, but if you don't, who will? We gathered a group of gals that I knew we could pull off a fundraiser. Some had a parent or, in one case, a sister that had it. That's how we started. And we really thought we'll do it just a one-shot deal. I didn't even invite my siblings because I didn't think anyone would show up. I knew my, my children would. Other than that, I thought, okay, I will say I've done it and we will call it a day. And we sent out the invitation and we sold out immediately. And when I looked around the room, you have friends that are being kind and you have, you know, your family that's being kind. But when I saw all these strangers, I thought there's so much more to this disease than any of us ever imagined. That behind closed door, there are so many people who are suffering, who are dealing with their parents, who are dealing with a relative quietly. If we could pull the veil over and say, it's okay to talk about it and let's do something about it. Awareness and fundraising, you need both. You can't have one or the other. That's where it launched. And then I thought, okay, well, we can't do this every year. I went to a talk from Mark Shriver. Mark Shriver had just written a book about his dad. And I introduced myself at the end of his talk. And I said, you know, would you ever come to California and talk about this book of your father having Alzheimer's? Sergeant Shriver. And it's all of a sudden his family and his, his life, which was so incredible. And he says, I'm coming out in January. So I created an event around him coming, and it was an author's luncheon, not geared to be a fundraiser, to be educational, mostly women. We could raise money, but we're educating and we're expanding the group. We do a big gala one year, and then we do the luncheon on the off year. That sort of gives a pause. And how did Bill Gates find out about your work? Because when somebody like Bill Gates finds out about you, you're going on a new trajectory. You're absolutely right. We raised $30 million and I kept thinking, okay, now where do we go from here? And in the news, probably now it's been two years ago, he mentioned that his father had Alzheimer's and his uncle. So it's in his family. My husband's involved with technology and I knew one or two people that were close to him that had been to our event and who knew what we were all about. And I asked them to introduce me over email to Bill. And they did two years ago and I heard nothing. And then I thought, okay, we're not professional enough. We're not savvy enough. We created this PowerPoint where the money was going, where the research is. We did a deep dive into the details, something that he would love. And then I went to another person and asked them to introduce me and nothing, nothing, nothing. And one morning I said to my husband, I'm not going to hear from him. And he turned to me and said, you have to let go of this. Promise me you're going to let go. And I was like, I, I, I will. But in my heart, I just feel like we are a pair, that we could do something. And an hour later, an email came in from Bill Gates saying, I've gone through your PowerPoint. I have done my homework. Nobody is doing the like what you guys are doing across the world. I think we should talk. And that was the start. We met with his team. I started my presentation to them and they turned to me and say, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm telling you where the research is. He says, if you don't think Bill Gates has gone through a fine tooth comb of every detail you presented to him, you don't realize who you're dealing with. And that was like three minutes in. And I said to him, okay, so this is what we're going to do. You're going to donate $10 million. We're going to raise $10 million. And together we're going to raise $10 million. 
so that we would be at 60 million. And they said, great, let's go. So where are you now with money raised? We are right now at over $60 million. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Almazian, president of TechHelpBoston, with the reasons why. We like to establish a relationship with our customers, and the best way to do that is see them in their natural setting, so to speak, and that's in their home. We come to you, we work with you on your equipment in a setting that's comfortable for you, and also we can test better that way, because if you have a printing problem or whatever, and we bring it to a shop, it may work great in the shop, but it might not work in your home. So this way we know for sure everything is working the way that it should. TechHelpBoston.com. Their experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer same day, next day, and weekends too. Visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com. It takes teamwork to put a weekly series like this together. I am so grateful to Jordan Rich and Ken Carberry for giving the story behind her success a home at Chart Productions. And to Dan Tebow, our editor from Fast Twitch Media. JC Valeris at Platinum Circle Media who handles our social media marketing, and so much more. Thank you all for making me look so good. I have read that every year, hundreds, thousands of drugs end up in a place called the Valley of Death. What does that mean? The Valley of Death is the first phase of human trials. So if you are a researcher, and most of our research are at universities and academia, you normally can get grants from the government, from the NIH. It's the National Institute of Health. They give them grants or the colleges will give them grants to do their research with mice. Once you have a positive outcome, you go into human trials. And it used to be that once you went into human trials, the NIH would come in and fund you some more. Since there has been no drugs that will slow down Alzheimer's, to cure Alzheimer's, or to turn it around, the industry has lost billions of dollars. The drug companies, the Johnson & Johnsons, the Biogens, are not gonna come in and buy up these research until they get to phase three. So you have three phases. Phase one, 1A, 1B, is it toxic? Is it going to hurt you? And you do a small group, say of 10 in phase 1A, and then it might be 100 or in that area for uh, 1B. 2A and 2B is does it work? And you take a small group and then a large group. Three is you have to do thousands. Right now, a phase three trial for Alzheimer's costs around $800 million. Valley of death is where they call where the researchers just can't find money. So when I was educated by the Alzheimer's Association, I kept saying, why are these trials not going through? And they would stall out after they're in mice. This event, I'm so proud to say, focuses only on the valley of death. We will fund researchers to either enter into human trials, we'll fund phase 1A, 1B, and 2A. And most of our grants are $600,000 to a million dollars for scientists. And that is a lot for research. That can get them through these phases, where then the phase three is when I'm talking about hundreds of millions. Right now, I'm proud to say we have 39 trials across the world. The NIH has 40. In three weeks, we are going to announce probably another 30 trials. So to think that this little event, which started off as a one-off, has caught up to the UN government, it just sends thrills down my spine. 
and the thought that we are now partnering with Bill Gates. You know, the future just looks bright where we can do this. We can do the manpower. The wheel that's been created with our partnership with the Alzheimer's Association and now with Bill Gates, it's a wheel that works on all cylinders. It is so exciting. When we run a grant process, there's 34 scientists from 13 countries that read all of these grants blindly. I no more could set up a foundation that I would have access to all of these professionals. Think of a football field. We are the first 40 yards. The NIH will not fund people on the first couple yards because you have to have proof of concept. But if they don't have funding, they can't get proof of concepts. So we fund the first 40 yards, then we hope the NIH comes in for the next 30 yards, and then you want the bio companies to pull them into the end zone. Does that make sense? It sure does. And the fact that you're talking about sports brings me to my next question, because I'd like to know a little bit about what makes you tick. And I think there are some parts of your past that have really played a major role in your success story. You are a world-class equestrian. Whenever I hear about someone who has spent a lot of their life in a sport like that, I always have to ask, do you think that playing a sport like that, having to be a performer on a stage like that worldwide, made you a more disciplined business person? Oh, Candy, that is very kind of you. I've never thought of it that way. It was so much a part of my youth competing and traveling and speaking to people that now I can sort of see the connection. You know, as an athlete, you think about everything as in goals and milestones and how do I get to the end zone kind of thing. And when I look at Alzheimer's, this is a fixable problem. There are roads that you can do if we increase the awareness plus funding, you will find a cure. So my competitive background allows me to come up with a plan. Someone once said at one of our events, had we not gotten behind polio, what would it have cost our nation? And right now, Alzheimer's is costing our nation, I think it's at $280 billion a year taking care of elderly. Now that will cripple Medicare or Medicaid. And whether you have it or not, I don't want anything to take that away from what we are due down the road. I find the world in these dots that it's like, if we can connect to one person that will connect to another person, we can gather people together raise the money we've needed to support and invest in research, that we can fix this and turn this around because none of us want to just exist. We want to live fully. We think about exercising and these brain teasers and all, but when Alzheimer's hit, it just takes it all away from you. There's something that can be solved. It's a shame that we don't go at it this way. So yes, I guess my competitive nature does help me continue on, but I see the goal at the end as a cure, and it is within our grasp to get there. What an obstacle is in your path. How do you get around it? I think I do. I think I break it down, and you have to keep working at it, and you absolutely need a little luck here and there, but, you know, I have this group of women who I saw at the beginning, we weren't all touched by it. Now, this group all has of parent or a sibling that has had the disease, and we get together the energy that is in the room, it really does make it feel like, okay, we can do this. It's a race. It's a race against time. I look at my siblings and it's like, are all of us going to get it? Is some of us going to get it? But the sand is in the hourglass. So I think I am in the greatest race of my life. This is something that 
I really am passionate about and uh, have made it now my life's work to try to solve this. You just were talking also about women. This sisterhood that you've always had, not only with the colleagues that you're working with now, but I want to take you back to something you and I both have in common, and that is our love for Boston College, where we both went to school. But you also experienced a tragedy when you were there, and I think it changed you. I was a sophomore in college, and my roommate was going north to visit her brother. We were all going to go with her. We had one of the football players was driving, and at the last second, I didn't get into the car. And I'm not like someone who would back out, but I did not want to go. They drove up, and a drunk driver went up and over the medium and landed on this car, and it killed my roommate. Our president, who was a priest, was in our room probably within, you know, moments and stayed with us. And he became a lifelong friend of mine. It was very difficult for the other roommates who were in this accident to move on. I looked at it as a guardian angel had watched over me. And without a doubt, it was a miracle that I was not in that car. I probably would have been in the front seat sitting next to my roommate. It would have been a whole different story. I look at it as a second chance. It's time to do something with every minute you have. And Boston College is a place where my soul gets filled up. And it's a place that you are inspired to do for others. I find great joy in it. So I'm glad I've been able to get to know you through Boston College. And it's a place that I hope will continue to inspire others. Final question. I believe that we measure success differently as we grow older. What we once thought would be success when we were 20 or 30 or 40 changes. At this moment where you are right now, what does success mean to you? Oh, that's easy. It would be a cure for Alzheimer's. The thought that my children would take care of me like we took care of my parents is something I never, never would want that to happen within my lifetime. But I'm hoping within the decade we will have a cure to this horrendous, dreaded disease. I want to say thank you so much, Mikey Hogue, founder of Part the Cloud, for being our guest today on the story behind her success. And if you want to find out more about this incredible organization, which is part of the Alzheimer's Association, just go to alz.org backslash part the cloud. Mikey, thank you so much. Candy, it was my pleasure. And thank you so much for shining a light on something that means so much to me and so many other people. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, candyoterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?